Well, that was the opening music to Holiday Affair, released in 1949 and directed by Don Hartman, starring Robert Mitchum, Janet Leigh, Wendell Corey, Gordon Giebert. I read that that's how you're supposed to pronounce his name. I hope I got that right. Giebert. Uh, Griff Barnett, uh, Esther Dale, Henry O'Neill as Mr. Crowley. That He was interesting. And then, of course, we were just talking before we started about Henry, uh, Harry Morgan's character. <laughs> as the police lieutenant. Yes. <laughs> it's just a really well-done, fun, entertaining holiday movie. It sort of restores your faith in a lot of different things. Yeah, I was reading it's kind of a lost classic in some ways because not a lot of people, uh, I guess, know about it or watch it every year as kind of a holiday classic film. But it's it should be. It's a it's a really great film. It made I was I just felt happy at the end of it. Although the very ending scene I was a little confused on, but we can get to that when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it was released in. Uh a general release on December 24th, 1949. They'd had an earlier premiere in November. But the film, unfortunately, was not a financial success. It lost money. And I I, I think, I don't know, it, it seems like ever since it was distributed, made and distributed, it's been forgotten. Yeah, it's... It's like a stepchild of other movies, like <laughs> the big movies of that time, like The Bishop's Wife and... And the uh, James Stewart film. Oh, It's um, a Wonderful Life. Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life. Well, this yeah. was released in the same year as Adam's Rib. That's right. Well, I was just uh, reading, I, I believe that Robert Mitchum made this film after he had served some jail time for an alleged uh, marijuana use. Uh, but there's also some stories that that was not a real thing, that it was a kind of a stage to entrap him and for publicity. So I don't know what the truth is there, but he came out of it even more popular than he ever was before. And this film, it, I like the character that he plays in this film. He does a really good job. He's he's both laid back and, and focused at the same time. But also really forthright. Like, I appreciated that in his character. It's one of the few movies that the character, he just says kind of what's on his mind, and and I really like that. And so did the little boy, Timmy. I like Timmy's character. Uh, Timmy's character. I know I identify with him because we're the same age, and he always had a better Lionel train than I got. I would say <laughs> I got the I got the middle of the market train. He got the upscale market uh, train. Do you remember if you saw this in the theater? I mean, you would have been what eight years old, so probably don't know. But I don't remember seeing it, but I'll bet we did. If it came. If it came to town at one of the two theaters, we would have gone, I'm sure, because this is the kind of film my mother would have said, we've got to go, we've got to go see this. But again, it just it just sort of was under the radar from beginning to even today. It's a it's an f- interesting film to watch, too, coming off of Adam's Rib, where we talked about the post-war social and cultural environment. And you, you see that here, too, where... Our main one of our main characters, played by Janet Leigh, uh, Connie Ennis, is a widow, and her husband was killed in the war. You know, the whole plot revolves around her not wanting to move on from their life together that they had. There's that really touching scene, kind of near the end, where uh, Robert Mitchum's character, Steve Mason, kind of lays it on the line for her, saying, "You know, you're not ready to move on, and I, I and I want somebody who's." gonna drop everything and run to me yeah and and so did Wendell Corey's character kind of said the same thing they were pretty healthy in in their relationships with her I felt like they were and, and their relationships with each other because they they both helped each other in certain ways at certain times and I liked the way they developed uh, uh, Wendell Corey's character they didn't turn him into a, a one-dimensional kind of a bad uh, former uh, boyfriend and and uh, when we get to that part of the film where they're all at the police station, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we see more of that. But um, Janet, uh, is it? I'm never sure if it's Janet Lee or Janet Lee. But anyway, Janet Lee uh, is a secret shopper at the big department stores. And when they met, when Robert Mitchum mentions the stores, I'm sorry, man, but uh, my business. Well, hello. <gasps> 
I help you? Uh, hello. Well, Came to return the I... train, huh? It wasn't exactly what I wanted. No, I didn't think it would be. When I got home last night, my little boy said that it... Oh, it was for your little boy? Why, yes, of course. Is that so? Anything strange about that? What's your little boy's name? Macy's, Sachs, Gimbel's, Wanamaker's, or Fisher and Lewis? It's like a litany of, of stores that are no longer around. Yeah. Gimbel's, Wanamaker, Wanamaker's. Macy's, of course, is bigger than ever, but she gets caught by Robert Mitchum buying this train, this very expensive train, without any questions or any any problems, and she has the exact amount of money, and then the next day she brings it back. Yeah, and he's he's onto her right away because he knows what the deal. Yeah, he's onto her right away. But instead of turning her into the floor walker, who was like omnipresent, I mean, <laughs> I would be afraid to go in that store for seeing him. But he he fire he turns in Mitchum and Mitchum gets fired from the store because he didn't turn Janet's character in for this uh, buying and then bringing it back thing. Yeah, that whole thing with the the secret shoppers and the floor walkers it just seems like from another age you know he's just what a it's just a foreign concept now it, it is you go out you go on to price pricegrabber.com and you can see you know like instantly what everything costs <laughs> price one of the things that there's so many things i liked about this film uh one of them is it's it brings back memories of me of what it was like to shop both in lowestown at a couple of the stores that were there one of them was named powers and then to go to Billings to what was to me a grand department store, hard album, and uh, they it was set up just like this. People wore suits and were dressed up, and shopping was a different experience. I mean, now I go to I go to Target or or uh, someplace like that, and it's just a madhouse of people, and and uh, sometimes you have difficulty getting an answer. But it's really different. It yeah. really is. It's like a bygone era. Remember when they? Remember when Timmy? This is just more a comment on the grand scale of the department store. But when Timmy goes back to return the train, and he's in the the CEO's office, and it's this ginormous office with this amazing view out these windows, and he's got this big desk. And I thought, wow, that's feels like from another era too. It does, it. and when his uh, executive assistant comes in to tell him that Timmy is there, he says, "Oh, this is my quiet hour." Yeah, no, he actually said it's my. He actually said it's my meditation hour, which I thought was interesting because. <laughs> and he had on the little music in the background. I'm like, this guy is really hip. <laughs> but poor. I mean, maybe poor he Timmy, was in there smoking uh... the marijuana. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, the little boy is a is a, a scene stealer for sure. He had a lot of lines. Like I was just I was just amazed. He at did what, what the size of his role was in the film, and he just I mean the, the director or the the acting coach or whoever was helping him was doing a great job, and and but he was just so fantastic in that role. It just felt like we were just watching him live his life. Like he wasn't even on a movie set, and he did the things that I did at that age, like. His mother said, go wash your hands and wash your face. So he goes in and puts some water on, then wipes it off on the towel. <laughs> I was forever getting into trouble because I, I forgot to use soap. Or eating was always like, you know, can you speed it, it up? Exactly. And it's kind of <laughs> cute, too, because she comes home late, and she calls him Mr. Ennis, and he calls her uh, Mrs. Ennis. Good evening, Mrs. Ennis. Good evening, Mr. Ennis. Well, you tried to surprise me, huh? I was watching out the window. Oh, you were. Oh, oh, is it good to see you. Look, I lost another tooth. At, at first, yeah, when you hear that, yeah. it's kind of cute, but then it kind of becomes revealed a little later that it, maybe that's not the most healthy thing to do to the little boy. <laughs> yeah, the Mitchum character points out that she's trying to reconstruct her son to be her yeah. uh, dead husband come back the 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 uh, just just the scenes alone i could watch this movie without any dialogue and have a trip down memory lane the little boy that was playing with timmy when when uh, janet lee's character came home had on a beanie <laughs> yeah. 
And and my brother had a beanie that looked just like that. In fact, it's in one of the pictures that'll be in the family history that I'm putting together. There's a picture of him with that beanie on. That's awesome. I'm glad I put that one in. <laughs> and then our friend Timmy, the little boy, plays a, a central role in Narrow Margin. Yeah, I saw Remember that. Remember on the train, he's, he's that inquisitive little boy that won't let... Charles McGraw's character alone in terms of, do you have a gun? Show me your gun. (laughs) And he has a cap pistol. He made a few movies as a child actor, but then I think he went on to become a pretty well-known architect. He's a very well-known architect. Yes, he's written books and he's uh, he's in New York City. He went to MIT. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, he definitely didn't he didn't go down the the Hollywood actor path. I believe he's still a professor at... uh, New York University or one of the one of the big universities in uh, New York City, and and I looked I looked him up and, and looked at photos and all that guy's in good shape. Yeah, well he's still a young he's still a young guy. He got lots of years ahead of him. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, more please. So anyway, uh, she brings home this train that she bought for her for her job and. Timmy, the being the inquisitive soul that he was. Yeah, he reminds me of you so much. <laughs> immediately tries to figure out how you to... You totally would have done that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I probably did. Although the trains were... Well, the train, I got two in two different years, but the first train was the same year as this movie. It was a surprise to me. I, I, it was, I think my dad must have taken it to another town <laughs> to keep it out of my... <laughs> yeah, but Timmy, Tim, Timmy looks in the box, he can't help himself, and he sees this train, and he gets all excited, oh. even though his mom told him that it's not for him. It's, when you're that age, it's like, sure, mom, sure, it's not for me, okay. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, she got me a train, yay! You know, he's, he's all excited. So then uh, Wendell Corey shows up. I just have to look up his name here. Carl Davis... And it's, it's the, even the scenes with between him and, and Janet Lee seem real to me. They they're, He's helping with the dishes. and. Good night, sweetheart. And don't forget to feed your turtles and brush your teeth. Do I have to brush where the lost one came out? No, you brush around where the lost one came out. <laughs> Good night, darling. I wear everybody out in the office with everything he says. I might as well warn you right now that compliments will get you no place. Uh-uh. I'll do it the dangerous way. You'll be sorry. <laughs> You look like a tired, beautiful girl tonight instead of just a beautiful girl. Mm, it was a rough day, all right. I think everybody in New York was out shopping. What did you buy me? Oh, one of those new English cars. Here, alley hmm. I may let you ride on the handlebars, show you off to the boys. <laughs> well, I haven't got a thing to wear. <laughs> hey, we're getting good at this. <laughs> Pretty good team. Why do we limit it to dishwashing? Marry me and I'll buy you a dishwasher. A cute little Frenchman with a tight skirt. What do you say, Connie? Could you give me a little more time, Carl? We've had almost two years. Well, you know what they say. This is so sudden. Got to have someone to buy loud neckties for. You told me about them. Boy, I sure bought Guy some buttes. How he must have hated wearing them. Oh, I'll bet he didn't. Any more than I would. Carl, I like you very, very much. You know that. But I don't feel Connie, that I... I've gotten a lot of divorces for a lot of people. Most of whom took one look at each other and said, this is it. Married two days later and split up two years later. But I've never gotten a divorce for two people that really liked each other. Well, Carl, there's Timmy. Are you sure that you're Are you trying ready? to talk me out of this? I promise you won't have to ask me again, Carl. If it's yes, I'll ask you. Does it feel like yes? Sort of. I'll tell you what it does feel like. Time to do these pots and pans. And this time, you're going to need this. There. I'll never forget the day you hired me. There I was, sitting at the agency with all the other girls. I was afraid you were going to take Evelyn. (laughs) They're talking about how if they got married, things would be better, and they'd been seeing each other for two years. And right away, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. That's a long yeah. time to be seeing each other. And she just is caught in the past. And he's trying his hardest to, to you know, say tell her that, that he loves her and, and they need to get married, and she resists that. But that was a good scene. In just a minute or two, you get the full picture of what's going on. And 
she he's he's very eager and wants to marry her and and she's kind of stringing him along in a way i mean she she doesn't want to say no but she's also not ready to say yes and and uh they leave it where he's not going to ask her anymore but she's going to ask him yeah <clears throat> i remember i jump ahead a little bit to where her mom and dad came for christmas dinner and she says I said, I'm going to marry. And the mom says, oh, who is it? She says, I'm going to marry Carl. And the mother goes, what? Yeah, she wasn't <laughs> she too was happy. shocked. <laughs> and she hadn't even met. She hadn't even met the other guy. Well, yet. and it's funny because I didn't take that as that she didn't like Carl. It's just that she didn't think Carl was a good fit for her. Like that, that they didn't really seem like they exactly. were a married couple. You know, like they would be a good married couple. Yeah. But it, but they also but they also came around and they supported her. They they didn't you know it wasn't like this stereotype yes. where they just got all upset and yelled at her and then just stormed out. You know they were like okay well if that's what you want then we support you. That's part of the reason I think the grandparents are, are so real in the story. Everybody in this story is is feels real to me. The nearest thing that seems maybe a little bit pushed is the floor walker. But then again, that <laughs> may be not. how they were. <laughs> he was scary. <laughs> he was like some kind of yeah. secret agent. So uh, Janet said, Let me, I'm going to start using her. Connie, Connie Ennis, takes the train back and, and gets the money, gets the money returned and gets Robert Mitchum fired. But then Robert Mitchum says, uh, Could you wait on me, please? I'd like to see the union suit that you have advertised. Rib cotton, fleece line, long sleeves, and I think it Darling, also has... Darling, you remembered. Now, uh, let me see. Uh, your husband wears about a size 42 or 44, I believe. Uh, no, I want the special, the 56. 56? Madam, do you realize how big that is? We just have a few of them made for fat men. 56, please. Well, that's what they told me to get. Still engaged in commercial espionage, I see. Fish and Lewis have to eat. Look, let me give you a little tip. You're much too professional. A real customer doesn't know what she wants until she sees it, and then she doesn't want it. See? Well, um, well what are you doing down here? I got fired. Oh, no. Because of me? I was supposed to turn you in. It's a rule, you know. Oh, how in the world did they find out? Little floor walkers have big ears. Was there anything I can do? There certainly is. When I was a working man, before you came into my life, I used to eat with the boys. But now, I somehow just don't feel they'd want me. And uh, since it's lunchtime... I'll even buy your lunch. That's roughly what I had in mind, except I'll buy yours on one condition. You let me take you to my favorite restaurant, and I do the ordering for both of us. I'm entirely in your hands. Here, we have a 56. It's the only one left, but uh, This is I... exactly what I want. Uh, would you wrap it, please, and I'll pick it up here later. But, but, madam, I... Really, I... Madam. Madam, I ask you. Well, I like them loose. And I'm thinking they're going to go to some nice restaurant, <laughs> and they end up at the Central Park Zoo. <laughs> yes. And they have hot dogs and coffee. And I don't know what the dessert was. And they watched the seal. Yeah, he yeah. said, this is my closest, closest friend. He's, he doesn't want to be the next banker. And it's a seal. There's the happiest guy in New York. He'll never be president of the First National Bank. Why don't you tell him to move over? Not me. I can't balance a ball on my nose. I don't like raw fish. No, I don't want to be him. I don't think he'd like to be me. <laughs> Wait a minute. You don't have to agree so fast, Port. <laughs> you so far is that you don't want to be a Central Park seal or president of the First National Bank. What do you want to be? It has a way of sounding odd to some people. I want to build boats. Boats? Yeah. 
Not the Queen Mary, just little sailboats. Hmm. I don't think it sounds odd at all. I think it sounds very exciting, but why aren't you doing it? Well, for one thing, the war nipped about five years out of my life. Then hmm. when I got out, I made the mistake of listening to people. Do something sensible, they said. Sell real estate or washing machines or mouse traps, but cut a few throats and wind up vice president. So I got me a nice, cozy job with a finance company. Wore young executive suits. Lived in one room and cooked on a two burner. And you prospered and grew fat. That was the plan. Every Monday, I'd buy a chunk of meat to last all week. I cook it six different ways, till by Saturday night, it wound up goulash. Week after week. So one Monday, I walked in the butcher shop. There was the meat all wrapped and waiting for me. But my stomach turned over and screamed, please, bud, not again. So I looked the butcher right in the eye, told him to give me the biggest, thickest porterhouse steak in the joint. Wish I had a mink coat for every time I wanted to do that. <laughs> The steak changed my whole life. It was too big for me to eat by myself, so I invited a friend over. His wife was out of town. While we sat there gorging ourselves, he told me about a job. He couldn't take it because he was married. It was a job on a boat going to South America. They asked for it, got it. Since you wouldn't go looking for a boat, a boat came looking for you. Exactly. Anyway, that did it. How can selling trains at Crowley's help you to build boats? Well, the trouble with you is you don't believe in happy endings. I've got a friend I met in the army. He's got a little boat yard down in Balboa, California. It's not much now, but it could be built into something. I'm buying into it. I take every job I can get. Every time I get $100 together, I send it to him. It may never make me a million, but for me, it's more fun than Digging for oil in Texas or coal in Kentucky. Mm, my gosh, I'm going to start digging for carpet sweepers at Gimbel's. <laughs> if you had told me that anyone could keep me for two hours and <laughs> a couple of hot dogs. Come on, I'll help you make up your time. I'll be your bachelor friend and you'll be a famous interior decorator helping me decorate my apartment. All right. You always make people talk this much? No. And I don't always like listening this much. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Those scenes in that little park, the zoo at the park, were whenever that was, whenever those scenes came on, it was very, very touching and warm and and real. Mitchum's character, he's one of the best actors I think I've ever seen because he he just is in that character totally, totally gets lost in that character. Yeah, he's it's it just doesn't feel forced at all. It's just like he's this he's this person. And he says, "Step into my office." And they sit on a park bench. <laughs> well, then that that little throwaway line about, well, he doesn't want to be the next uh bank vice president comes back later, so it's a little bit of foreshadowing and that's the clue that uh Connie needs later to figure out where uh Steve is cuz she's looking for Steve. So we uh I think we jump to Christmas morning, and she wakes up, and, and Timmy comes running in and jumps on her. Even that startled me. I, every, every time I see this, he just, yay! Well, how, people that have kids, how many times have your kids like, like run into your room Christmas morning when they're real little and just like jump on you like that? That's just so perfect. Uh, I counted the number of times it was 172. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> He's found the train. He, she goes out to the living room, and he's got the train all scattered all over the floor. And she's she figures out she deduces that that uh, that must that was bought by uh, Mitchum's character Steve, and she's not happy with that. So she has to figure out how to go talk to him. Present, sweetheart. You sure did fool me. <sighs> oh, well, baby. You're telling me not to get in it. I wouldn't get anything wonderful for Christmas. <laughs> but when I saw it outside the door, oh, boom, mom, mom. <laughs> telling me to get the milk from the hall if I woke up early. You knew I'd wake up early Christmas. Oh. Hey. Oh, well, let's see. I gotta see what's going on around here. Look, I already opened it. What? Mom, Mom, I love it. Ooh, I love you. Oh, I'm sure oh. glad of that. See, these two go together, and 
and the cars light up, and it says Red Rocket Express, and the cars do. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful train, sweetheart. And the doors open, and oh, oh there's a note on it. You put it in, and you forgot I can't read big words. Here, I see. Uh, Timmy, this whistled at me when I passed and said I wanted you for Christmas. It's signed Santa. I, I guess it's from Santa Claus. Santa Claus, Mom. Oh, I got a surprise for you, too. Look, I fixed it up all myself. I've been looking for that stocking for a week. I had to get away. <laughs> character? Christmas gift! Oh, Tim. Aren't oh. you going to open it? Well, I am if you'll give me time. It's perfume, not turn of water. Real perfume. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I know. I can see. Look. Mm. I saved up for it all myself. But I had to tell the lady in the store it's for you, so she wouldn't think I was a little girl. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to give you a kiss for Don't that. Don't need it. Oh, no. You're going to get one whether you need it or not. I fooled you. You fooled me. I fooled you. Oh, you sure did. Say, but how did you know I wanted the train so bad? I didn't tell anyone except Mr. Mason. Mr. Mason? Yeah, and he said he wouldn't tell you. Oh, I know. I didn't get the ribbon back on right, so you knew I peeked at it. You always know everything. You peeked at it? Yeah, that one you brought home from the store. I thought it was for me. And then I said it wasn't, didn't I? Yeah, and then I cried. Oh. Now I guess I'm so happy if I was a dog, my tail would be wagging. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, Tim, I've got to tell you about that change. I think she's telling herself that she's not supposed to be happy about that. You know, it's like it's like she sees how happy her son is, and yeah. there's a moment there yeah. where she seems really happy, but then I can't be happy about this. We've got to take this back, and that's the that's the internal struggle that she's kind of going through through throughout the whole movie, where she's not letting herself be happy, and she's even telling Timmy that don't dream too big. You know, you can't you can't wish for things that are too big because you're just you're just going to be disappointed. So she tries to return the money to Steve, but. Um, I don't know. She can't find him, or I think I think she goes there, and the desk clerk says he's he's gone, he's out. She said, "Do you know where he went?" And he's well. He said he was going to go meet with his favorite banker. Oh right, right. That's it. Yeah. And then then she figures out that he's at the park zoo again. I want to backstep just a minute. Um, we meet we meet Carl and Steve together a little earlier in the film when Steve brings home all those packages that he got wrangled into carrying for her, and they get separated on the bus. Oh, right, because they went shopping together. Yeah, yeah. And and, and the scene where the two of them are standing there, <laughs> Carl with the lights around his neck, and Steve... It's so awkward. It's so, it's so awkward. Looks as though we might have a white Christmas. That's right. Never seems like Christmas unless it is white. That's right. Still, we don't seem to get the big snows we used to when we were kids. That's right. Just comes down slush now. That's right. Probably got something to do with the atomic bomb. Hey, that's right. Last year it rained. That's right, I remember. They need rain in California. Is that so? I read it in the papers. I'm from California. Is that so? Never rains. Is that so? I was in California one June. Is that so? Rained all the time. Must have been about ten years ago. That's right. Very unusual. Is that so? Mind if I go on trimming my tree? No. No, you go right ahead. Thank you. And then we do get that scene between Steve and Timmy. Well, was it? Oh, hi, Joey. Wish I could come over, but Mom sent me to bed with no dinner, darling. Bye, I gotta go now. Hello. Hello, Timmy. Sorry I'm so bad in there. Yeah, you kicked up quite a fuss. Think he's really mad at me? No. Next time you see him, you tell him you're sorry. He'll understand. He looks like a pretty nice guy. He is. I don't know why I'm so mean in there. 
I let them swim in the bathtub every day. Once one of them got kidnapped from the vacuum cleaner, but I went to the rescue to rescue him. You ought to get them a hyacinth blossom. I'll see if I can find one for you. They like to nibble on it. It's like catnip for cats. How do you know? Oh, they had some in a toy department where I once worked. How did Mom get you fired? That door. I can hear things to it sometimes. Uh-huh. Especially when you put your ear next to it. I uh, drilled a hole in my bedroom floor when I was a kid so I could look down into the living room. But how did Mom get you fired? Oh, I sold her a train, and then when she brought it back, I didn't do something I was supposed to. A little electric train? Red and silver? With a whistle oh, and a... Oh, you saw it, huh? Yeah, but don't tell Mom. Oh, I won't. I opened the package and took a peek. I thought it was for me, but it wasn't. She used sure as well trying. <laughs> Timmy, you know when you got mad in there? Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes when I get mad, I find out that it's about something different than what I thought. That ever happened to you? Guess we're a lot alike. <laughs> yeah, I guess we are. Well, anyway, do you suppose it was not getting the train that you were really mad about? I don't even let myself think about it anymore. Because I know I can't have it. Look, Timmy, let me show you something I learned when I was a kid. Here. Hop up. Now, you take the ball and try to hit the moon on the blackboard. Now, aim right at it. Oh, ah. Okay, don't give up. Now, try again. And this time, aim a little bit higher than the moon. That's the idea. You see, if you aim higher than your mark, then you've got a better chance of hitting the mark. So if you wish real hard for something, maybe you might get it. And I just thought that was such a great little scene there. Yeah, that was perfect. I do want to take a minute and say kudos to Isabel Leonard, who wrote the screenplay. I did not look up Isabel's background, but it's one of the finest screenplays for continuity and realism that I think anybody could find. She just, I, I'm assume Isabel is, is a woman. I, I... Yeah, she's a woman. She, she also wrote um, Funny Girl, um, The Sundowners. Oh, my goodness. Yes, okay. Oh, that's another Robert Mitchum film that's wonderful, filmed in Australia from the 1960s. I think we've talked about watching that one before. The girl next door. Yeah, that's that's worthwhile for sure to to see. She she wrote quite a few. Yeah, this screenplay is just excellent. I only have one complaint about it at the end, which I'll talk about. So we go back to uh, she and and uh, Steve are now sitting in the park, and and Timmy kind of pushed her into getting a present for. Steve, because he'd given him that train. Well, he didn't have to push very hard, though. No, she she was able to. <laughs> so she takes one of the gifts for Carl, which is a tie, takes it with her to the park. She really, boy, talk about back and forth. She wants to pay him for the money, but she doesn't. She doesn't want to have him leave, but she does. She gives him the tie, and he, tra- he, he takes his old tie off and gives it to an older man walking through the park. You want this tie? And that guy seemed like just sort of a nice guy in the park. Comes back to haunt him later, but uh, and then that tie. And then and then a little girl on roller skates comes up and gives Robert Mitchum uh, a present, and he says, "Well, this guy said to give this to you, and it's a salt and pepper shaker set." <laughs> yeah, right. It's so weird. And it was that whole scene was just <laughs> odd, but it's just a great setup for the scene a little bit later when they go to the police station. Mitchum loves the squirrel. Yeah, the squirrel. The orphan squirrel. So then I guess Janet goes back to the house and Grandma and Grandpa are there and Carl comes or is there. and So it's a happy scene with Carl, Timmy, Grandpa and Grandma and, and uh, Connie. And then uh, there's a knock at the door and the, the, they don't re- the camera does not reveal who it is and I'm thinking it's Robert Mitchum. Yeah, me too. It's not. It's Lieutenant or it's the detective from the police department. Yeah. Larry Blake is the character, and and he says she should come to the police station because Steve has been arrested, 
And Timmy says, I'm going too, because I know him. He gave me another train. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> and Carl says, well, I'll go. And they all So they all go down to the police station. So, yeah, that's right. Then they go to the police station for, I think, just the most hilarious five minutes you could ever watch in a movie. And shortly before nine this morning in Central Park, a Mr. Mervyn Fisher was hit on the head, tied up with a necktie, and robbed of a wallet containing $120 and a pair of silver salt and pepper shakers, a present for his aunt in Flushing. A little later, Officer McCleary, patrolling the park, noticed Mr. Mason loitering suspiciously. He admitted that he was unemployed, homeless, about to leave town, and that the necktie belonged to him. The salt and pepper shakers were found on his person. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just thought it was going to be much worse. You expected the suspect to be involved in a serious crime? Oh, no, no, nothing like that. Uh, Connie, Lieutenant, I'm a lawyer and... Is that so? If I ever need a lawyer, I'll send for you. If I ever need a comical cop, I'll send for you. I'm defending this man, with your permission, Mason. With my profound gratitude, but with probably no fee. Why isn't Mervyn Fisher here to identify the suspect? Because he didn't see who hit him. And uh, he had to get the flushing to see his aunt. Yeah. Was Mr. Mason searched to see whether the stolen money was on his person? Searched? They looked four times in my ears. You must have liked that cell you were in, bud. Sorry, no more jokes. No, he didn't have the money on him. All he had was $7.52. Well, then? Well, then, nothing. There's nothing easier to dump than money. I haven't got enough men to look under every rock in the park. Lieutenant, I think I can clear this all up. Go ahead, ma'am. If uh, Clarence Darrow here hasn't any objections. You've no idea how interested I am. Well, I was with Mr. Mason in the park from eight till nine this morning. He gave his necktie to a man he, he thought was a hobo as a Christmas present. A few minutes later, a little girl on roller skates with, with a balloon on her head came with a present for him from the hobo, the salt and pepper shakers. A little girl on roller skates with a balloon on her head. Would you mind telling me whether a complaint has been lodged against Mr. Mason? What's he got to do with this anyway? He's my lawyer. Oh, he's my fiancé. We're to be married New Year's Day. Oh, I see. He's your fiancé. On New Year's Day, you're going to marry the counselor here. That's right. And what were you doing in the park with this guy 8 o'clock Christmas morning? I don't see what this has got to do with the case. Oh, you don't, huh? No. Well, I, I, I wanted to see him, and, and he was in the park. He eats there with the seals. You see, early this morning, a train arrived, an electric train, for my boy Timmy, for Mr. Mason. The guy's without a job, broke. Without a bed to sleep in, and he buys a kid an electric train. Why? Well, it's Christmas. Let's say I felt like giving somebody a Christmas present and I didn't know anybody else in New York. That why you gave that hobo your necktie? Oh, I just given Mr. Mason a new tie, the one he's wearing now. Well, this morning after his present arrived... You mind telling me where you bought a tie, 8 o'clock Christmas morning? Oh, she had a tie. It was under the tree. It was one of the presents she had for him. The romantic relationships of the parties involved have nothing to do with this case. You've nothing but the weakest kind of circumstantial evidence. Oh, I don't know. Why did he hide behind the rock when he saw the policeman? I wasn't hiding. What were you doing? He'll never believe this. Oh, I might. Go ahead. Try me. I was feeding a squirrel. He's an orphan. He depends on me. Guys without a job, gives Christmas presents to a tramp, gets Christmas presents from a little girl with a balloon on her head, eats in the park with the seals, is a mother and father to an orphan squirrel. You don't think this guy's a suspicious character? But everything we've said is true, don't you believe us? Oh, sure. 
Everything you said jibed with what he said before you got here. I'm just saying, maybe this guy shouldn't be allowed out without a keeper. But can he go free? I'd have to let him if he weren't uh, planning to skip town. Oh, I'm not. I've got a room downtown, 137 Christopher Street. Change your mind, huh? Gonna stick around for a while, huh? Well, uh, just till I can earn the fare to California. I've got a job there. Why don't you touch him for it? I bet he'd be glad to get your ticket to California. Or the moon, just to get rid of you. Now look here, Lieutenant. That's all. Case dismissed. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. As this story is revealed, and, and Harry Morgan as the uh, uh, lieutenant in charge is perfect. I mean, he just hits the <laughs> notes perfectly. Yeah, it's just awesome. I was thinking to myself, how many times did they have to film that to get it the way it is? Knowing that crew, they probably did it in one take. How did they not just crack up? I mean, some of those lines are like, so let me get this straight. And then he recounts the story and then... <laughs> And then he says something like, well, he may not be a criminal, but he may he's also maybe not the most up-and-up guy. <laughs> and he refers yeah. to Carl as the Clarence Darrell character, the lawyer. <laughs> and, oh, God. I, the upshot is there's no charges, and they're all dismissed. And they come outside, and it's a blizzard. They all go back for dinner for Christmas. They, re, they invite Steve back for dinner, and he's reluctant and doesn't want to come. He's got other things. He doesn't really have anything. But, he, but finally, he relents, and they bring him back. So now our happy, happy home is Grandpa and Grandma, Carl, Steve, Connie, and Timmy, and the train, of course. And there's a beautiful scene between Grandpa and Grandma where he talks about their love and 35 years of marriage. Oh, Father, you've had four already. What you don't count won't hurt you, dearie. Besides, I need strength. I'm going to make a speech. Oh. Yeah! Mother, I've been married to you 35 years. You boss me, you heckle me, you hide my things and pretend I've lost them just so I have to depend on you. You've spent 35 years trying to make me admit that I couldn't possibly get along without you. And you're right. I couldn't. What's more, I wouldn't want to. Every one of those years was good, even the bad ones, because you were with me. And so I drink to your health and all the wonderful years to come. Carl, just be as happy with Connie as I've been with Mother. That's all. And that seems so spontaneous to me. Just the way he presented it. Yeah, and the and the way that they looked at each other. Just that that character was. Those two characters are just wonderful. And then uh, Carl decides that he's going to make a little speech. This has been the happiest Christmas of my life. I've never had a family of my own, and today I know what I've missed. But I'll never have to miss it again. From now on, I'll have a wife, a son, and if Connie will let me share them, a mother-in-law and a father-in-law. Connie, I've loved you for a long time. And I've waited for you a long time. But it was worth it. Steve, we wish you luck in your new job in California. And we're very happy that you're not alone this Christmas, but having dinner here with us. Thank you. Now it's Steve's turn. Oh, no, I pass. I'm too full. Come on. Go ahead, Steve. Well, you've all been very kind to me. You've taken me in and given me a great dinner. And there's really nothing for me to say after we've had dessert, of course, except thank you and goodbye. That's all I was going to say, but... Well, you asked for it. Connie, I think Carl is just about one of the nicest fellows I could ever hope to meet. But I think you ought to marry me. Father, we'd better go to the kitchen and, and, and bring uh, the coffee honey, and dessert. I don't think anybody wants it just now. Maybe you think it's wrong of me to speak this way in front of Timmy, but I don't see how it can do a boy any harm to know that two men like his mother. Maybe it's bad taste to speak in front of Carl, but would it be better if I sneaked around and tried to get Connie behind the kitchen stove? I don't think so. If you think this is biting the hand that's fed me, then look at my problem. 
I've walked out of Connie's life a couple of times now, and each time something brings me back. Lost packages, train, a cop, accidents. I'm afraid I can't keep counting on accidents. If I walk out now, I'm sunk. I'll never see her again. The way I figure it, when a man's in love with a girl, he's got a right to ask her to marry him. Any girl. Anybody's girl. What do you say, Connie? I think you'd better get your hat and coat. It's a fair answer to a fair question. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. This was so great and refreshing. He just gets up and says, well, I'm going to say something, and you might think that I'm rude and might, might, might want to throw me out, but I think that Connie should marry me. <laughs> yeah. How many times has that, has that happened at a Christmas dinner? Probably not, not often, Probably I Probably never. <laughs> but he says, you know, what, would you rather have me say this now, or would you rather have me sneak her behind the, the oven in the kitchen and... He's just so forthright about it and honest. I, I love that. And and uh, then he then he says, "Well, I think with that I'll leave." And she says, "Yeah, you probably should." Even though she, it she looks like she's really not that upset. Well, and also I think Carl knows that she's she's kind of being more upset than she really feels. And I think at that point Carl knows that. Oh uh, yeah. Maybe this isn't going to work out. Then they get to the part. We get to the part where Timmy is going to return the train set. I wanted to spend just a second on the Christmas dinner scenes where Grandpa Ennis, played by Griff Barnett. Griff Barnett was one of the best-known voiceover and and, uh, radio actors in the 30s and 40s because of his voice. Oh, cool. If you listen to his voice, it's perfect for radio. It's kind of a baritone, and delivery is beautiful. That man... I think my mother listened to him every day on one of those soap operas. He was the announcer that set up like either young Dr. Malone or one of those. I, that voice will always be with me because it's so beautiful for radio. Just look him up on YouTube. You'll probably find his radio shows in history. But then back to Timmy and the train. He goes off on his own, by the way. Yeah, we, we, we see Timmy kind of like wake, making his way to the department store with the box, his box full of trains. No lid on it, and it looks like there, people are bumping into him, and one, <laughs> one person says, hey, are you here alone? And he goes, oh, no, no, the, I'm with somebody on the elevator, and he gets on the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the train pieces falls down, and a lady steps on it, and it's broken, and he gets off the elevator, and who yeah. should he encounter? The floor walker. And the floor walker's suspicious, like, what are you doing, son? <laughs> and the, but Timmy, Timmy sort of gets out of it, runs away, but, and overhears somebody saying that if you really want to return something, you've got to go to the top and you've got to talk to Mr. Crowley. So then he talks to a janitor and says, where's Mr. Crowley's office? And, oh, eighth floor. So then he heads up to the eighth floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, with his gloves and coat on and hat, he's probably about 200 degrees in that store. And we find him entering the executive suite. Yeah, and this is where we meet Mr. Crowley, who's, who, who his executive assistant has to interrupt his meditation hour. <laughs> well, she was very realistic, too. She, she was very kind and, and caring when this little boy brings in this box of train goods. Now, don't she leave. She was really good about that. She said, go sit over there. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure you see Mr. Crowley. Yeah, she was great. <laughs> and he's Mr. Crowley is deep in meditation. And I think I can get Mr. Crowley to see you. You won't call my mother or a policeman, will you? No, I won't call your mother or a policeman. Okay, thank you. Emily, this is the meditation hour. I'm awfully sorry to disturb you, Mr. Crowley, but one of our customers, Mr. Ennis, is outside asking to see you. You know I don't see the customers. I think you'll want to see this one. Why? Because Mr. Ennis is roughly six years old. Six years old? And seems to be in an awful lot of trouble. Is he here all alone? He's the alonest little fellow I ever saw. 
Emily, don't keep the customer waiting. Yeah, I think he was asleep. <laughs> but then he agrees to see this this customer. Don't keep the customer waiting, he says, because <laughs> she explains to him about how, well, he can't be more than six years old, and he's got a box full of broken trains. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and Mr. Crowley goes out of his way to, to hear the whole story. Yeah, yeah, that was that was sweet. And then meanwhile, we, we go back to... Uh, Connie's apartment where there's a frantic search for Timmy because she and Carl don't know where he is. Yeah. Yeah. Timmy just decided that he wants to return the trains to get the money back to give to um, to Steve because he feels bad that Steve doesn't have any money and he wants to help him out. Yeah. So, so the, but then they, they, they see a big car pull up, real fancy car, and a driver there's... gets out and opens the back door and Mr. Crowley and Timmy get out and they're all relieved and excited and they're like, where have you been? <laughs> so then they decide, okay, we've got to go take this back to Steve, but we don't know where he lives. And then oh, she she immediately knows the address, and she only heard it once when they were at the police station. And 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 uh, Carl yeah. kind of gets this look on his face, like, yeah. well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's really clear on what's happening now. Yeah. So then they go over, drive over there together, and he gets out and says, "All right, well, let's go give his money back to him." And and she's like, um, why don't I just stay here and you can do it? And then he that's when he knows 100% that she doesn't love him enough to marry him. Yeah. A couple of things about that scene. First of all, the car that he's driving is beautiful. It's a 1947 Chrysler. Yeah, it looked like awesome. it was right out of the showroom. Maybe a 48, 1948. So that's nice. And then the scene where he presents his case that they're no longer really going to get married and and, and and he says that one that one line that's so poignant that his life changed just by someone not getting out of the car. That's such a great scene. He was really perfect in that part. He really was. I mean, he, he, he's played some kind of less complex, one-dimensional characters, I would say. But this one was, yeah, this might have been one of his best roles ever. I think this one and, and then the one from Rear Window where he's uh, from 1954 where he's Detective Tom Doyle. That's another Oh, the friend. Yeah, actor. the friend. Died tragically at the age of 54. Quite young. But that scene is so wonderful. Well, he says, why don't you go give him back his money and I'll wait for five minutes and if you get a better offer, great. Otherwise, I'll take you out to dinner. And he, you know he's just so gracious and understanding and I think what I really really liked the best about this movie was that everybody just wanted what was best for the other people. Nobody was out to like sabotage anybody, nobody was out to like try to hurt them. It was just like, well, we're we're all just trying to get through this life. Let's try to get, you know, make the most of it. And the scene where we've, we where uh Steve is in this little apartment. It looks like it's about $80 a month. He's got the plans up for the boat. Yeah, that's cool. So he's he's ready to head out to California. He just needs a little bit more money for a train ticket. And then she gives him the money. And he's like, well, I guess I'll get the cheapest train ticket I can to California and head out on the late... The Midnight Express, yeah. And he makes one more pitch for her to, to marry him. And she just, she won't. And, he's, and that's where he has that great line of... Come in. Well, you found the place. You know, very few people come here to eat anymore. Too much atmosphere. We've been thinking of uh, closing down the joint to redecorate. Uh, uh, the landlady said to keep the door open. Let's worry you, huh? But uh, let's not worry you. Well, I never expected to see you. I have $79.50 plus tax that belongs to you. You know, I'm going to get sore if people don't quit chasing me around New York trying to give me money. This is from Timmy. He took his train back, all by himself. Well, why would he do that? He was crazy about it. He wants you to have the money. And he said to tell you that he'll never forget you. What a kid. Wow. You're pretty good. Where'd you learn all this? Oh, I picked it up as I went along. Well, looks like a happy new year all around, huh? I can shake myself loose from this penthouse and grab the first cheap train to California. You and Carl will be getting set for your honeymoon. Carl and I are not getting married. 
I guess that's my cue to propose again. But I'm not going to. Well, nobody asked you to. Wouldn't you like to know why? Not particularly. Well, I'll tell you anyway. You know, I've been doing a little talking to myself, too. Carl isn't the real threat to me. Maybe I'm not to him. This isn't two fellows and a girl, you know. This is two fellows, a girl and her husband. I can't fight a shadow. I tried it. Competition's too tough. You were even going to play it safe and settle for someone you didn't love so you wouldn't be unfaithful to your husband. Oh, you're always so wrong about me. I have a wonderful memory of a husband and a marriage. You're trying to take it away from me. Nobody wants to do that. I don't. I'm sure Carl doesn't. All anybody wants is for you to live in the present and not be afraid of the future. You know, maybe it can happen again if you quit pretending that something that's dead is still alive. Oh, all right. It'll make you any happier. You're a fortune teller. You're absolutely right about me all the time. I want everything just the way it is, Mrs. Status Quo. Just me and Timmy. No changes. And I want a girl that'll drop everything and run to me, no matter what the score is. That's a great line. There's so many good scenes in it. And then... Uh... She comes back down, and Carl's still there, and she begs him to take her home. And then uh, Timmy is writing something on the mirror with her lipstick. Happy New Year. And then she sits down, and that's when she realizes she's got to find Steve. Well, because Timmy, in a speech that's wise beyond his years, because he's been forced to grow up so quickly without his dad and mom being there together, and, and her kind of continually saying, well, you're the man in the house. He says, oh, fine. This is going to be in swell shape for me. Come on, Mikey, I have to get ready. It says Happy New Year. Oh, your printing's improving anyway. It won't be New Year's yet for hours. Where's the party? Russ and Harriet's? Mm-hmm. Going along? Mm-hmm. Gee, you don't have any fun anymore, do you? Oh, I've got you, haven't I? Aren't you, my fella? Oh, sure, but heck. I'll be running out and getting married pretty soon. Oh, I guess someday. Then you'll be alone. I mean, what if I move away? Where are you planning on moving? Cairo or Baghdad? Oh, there's a lot of places. California, for instance. Of course, I'd write you a lot and everything, and I'd come to see you, but what I mean is... I know exactly what you mean. Boy, when you start growing up, you don't waste any time, do you? Mom, what are you thinking about? Well, since your plans are all made, maybe I ought to start thinking about my future. Come on, young man, you and I have things to do right now. Yeah. She just kind of looks at him in the mirror and looks at herself and, and realizes, you know what, I do need to take care of myself. I can't continue to live in my memories and in the past. Such a great scene. I just This movie is so well done. And they have four hours to collect what they need and to make it to the train, to the station, so they can get on the train and, and meet up with Steve. And then I think we move forward to where Steve is sitting in the train and it looks like 12,000 people are in that car celebrating New Year's. Yeah, that's quite the party. Because it's midnight, and uh, he's handed a note by the porter. Oh, okay, I missed that part. So that was that clears up my confusion. So I thought I thought he just sort of like got up and ran to the back of the train to meet oh. to meet them. Just Yeah, he, okay. No, but he got a note. Okay, all right. That's the connection. Yeah, he's sitting there having a drink with all these revelers around him, and the porter gives him this note and it must read that she's on the train with Timmy. And <laughs> yeah. He's just, he flew down the aisle, or the not the aisle, the corridor, and they meet up and then this drunk won't leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> and he pushes him out of the yeah. way. Well, I'm glad I'm glad I mentioned that because if he didn't see that scene, you'd think he has ESP in order to... That's what I thought. I thought, wow, this guy is like telepathic. He knows that they're on the train just by the fact that they got on board. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes more sense. Thanks for, clar for clarifying that. <laughs> so they meet up, and the three of them are happy, and you see the train take off, and then you see it pulling into the station, and the camera pulls back, and it's a train set at Balboa. Well, and, and the opening scene was a train set at the department store, and so it's kind of this neat connecting back to the beginning, yeah. 
Wasn't that neat? Yeah. Yeah. So I've really thought about this movie. It's a 10. I could watch this movie every month, and it would still be a 10. It might go to an 11 or 12. <laughs> I just think everybody in it is real, and the, and, the, and the screenwriting by the woman that wrote it is... I don't think it could be better. I really don't. Well, I was going to say a 9 because I was so confused by the ending, but now that I understand that he got that note, I'm going to go with a 10 as well. It's it's awesome. It, I think it should become one of the movies that we watch every year and just kind of one of those holiday movies. It's just, there were points points where I was kind of watching it on my iPad and laying in bed and I was I just started laughing out loud and Tin was like, what are you, what are you watching? What are you doing? <laughs> it wasn't Plan 9 from Outer Space. No, I said, this is a great movie. We should watch this together. And then she's like, well, I know your taste in movies. And I said, no, no, really, this one's good. <laughs> that sounds like something <laughs> sounds like something Nancy would say to me. I'm a little leery of your choice of movies after the Red Shoes. Get out. Yeah, that's right. We were going to review the Red Shoes, but it was such a downer at the end. You said that we should just not do that. Yeah. Oh, it might be better suited for Halloween. So uh, speaking of movies that we were going to do, what, what's up next? Well, our next uh, podcast will be To Be or Not To Be from 1942 with Carol Landis and Jack Benny and Robert Stack when he looks like he was about 18 years old. It takes place in Poland right at the beginning of World War II. And it's a drama, war drama, and uh, a parody of the Nazis all wrapped into one. Pretty good film. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I've heard a lot about it. I haven't seen it before. And then we move to Some Like It Hot, Billy Wilder. Yeah, we're going to watch Some Like It Hot, and uh, we've invited our, our new f- friend Jimmy Custis to join us on that one, and uh, we're going to go through that film, and he says that's one of his favorite Billy Wilder movies, so that should be fun. <laughs> Plus it ties back to the, uh, the Monster Party movie where at the ending they make a reference back to <laughs> Some Like It Hot. If if you can't laugh at some of those scenes, you may never be able to laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's perfect for the holidays because there's a blizzard going on along with uh, the shootout in Chicago. And and before we do the Jimmy Zoom call, you and I will do a practice run so I don't do my uh, Laurel and Hardy routine with Nancy. Yeah, we'll during, get the we'll get the technical the stuff podcast. figured out. And then, and then I was uh, on. I was looking around, and I got uh, sucked into reading about Anime Wong. And uh, so I think we're going to do a festival of Anime Wong uh, movies after Some Like It Hot. So she made. You said something like sixty films. Absolutely, she was in the business forty years and did thirty or forty films at least, maybe even more than that, because she started out in the silent era. And uh, we'll find. Uh, two or three of those, they're not as well, uh, they're not as available as some, but I have not checked them all out. So, Well, we'll find, I'm sure there's a few that we can find, and I'd love to try to do a silent one. That would be cool. Yeah. Plus, there's an excellent documentary on her uh, life and all that is available. I th- I think it may have been done, uh, I don't want to, well, don't quote me on this, but I think it might have been a Turner Classic Movies documentary about her life. Because it was sort of the beginning of another long overdue revolution, you know, in the in the, the growing diversity, trying to grow diversity within the film business, and racism in in movies. So if you look at her website on Wikipedia, there's some references to it. So that'll be that'll be a good one, yeah. For those that celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. Uh, for those that celebrate uh, Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, and for those that celebrate other holidays or don't celebrate at all, we hope that you have a good month, and we're headed into 2021, which I have the highest hopes will be a good year. (laughs) That was our review of Holiday Affair, and this is Matt coming to you from sunny North Bend. And this is Bob in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching and happy holidays. Happy holidays.